Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts now as we uh, look at your word and look at the lives of people that you've used to change the world regarding education. Thank you that we're always learners. We want to know you better. So bless this day. We look to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for all of your works, all of your working, and what you've done. We want to honor you this morning. Help me as I bring these, these things to our minds. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at how Christianity has transformed the world as it relates to education. I need to put this little thing on here. Okay. I want to give credit to Sharon James and Alvin Schmidt are two of the books that I've used extensively, both in this uh, lesson today as well as the one on justice and the one on health care last week. Uh, they were incredibly helpful, and I've learned a ton. I, I have, I'm not very, I'm a math guy. I never paid much attention during history class when I was young, or they didn't teach it, one or the other. But uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have some familiar things to you from history as well as some new things. So education, we think of studying, knowing, and teaching. And can you think of some passages you're, you're familiar with? that show studying, learning, and teaching as common themes in Scripture. Are there some that come to mind for you? I'm going to go through a bunch, but if you've got a couple, we'll... Yeah? Somewhere in First Timothy, I think, or Second Timothy, study to show yourself approved. Okay. Not be ashamed. Riley, and we're going to look at that one. Okay, good. Any others? Well, let's go through a few. You're familiar with the Deuteronomy 6 passage, what parents are charged to do, well, for everyone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Teaching with heart. Proverbs 1, 7, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Knowing. With Jesus, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to these teachers of the law and asking them questions. <laughs> And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Listening, asking, hearing, teaching going on. And Jesus being the master teacher, even as a, a young man. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Came with power. Great Commission, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus taught his disciples with the purpose of them passing it on to others. It wasn't just for them. Every day in the temple and from house to house, what was their response? They did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ or that the Christ is Jesus, right? Paul, speaking to the Ephesian church, said, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. The Bereans, you're familiar with this, Berean Jews were more noble character than those of Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Familiar passage, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Who's to be doing this? Everyone. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul gave this to Timothy. What you've heard from me in the presence of my many witnesses and trust of faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Hearing, entrusting, teaching. You say, why in the world does he all of a sudden bring up the Cambridge (laughs) physics lab? Well, inscribed in Latin at the top of the old wooden doors, they, they now have a new lab that's inscribed in English, is a verse. Anybody know who, what it is? I'll give you a hint. If you listen to the Amati, uh, Sam Amati and Jim Hamilton podcast, Bible Talk, they always, I think, start and end with it. Psalm 120 or 111.2, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. That's it. That's pretty amazing. It's on that university door, huh? Started very committed to a Christian worldview. So there's this energy associated with teaching and learning and knowing out of joy for knowing God. And the Bible places a high premium on knowledge, doesn't it? It's it's not alone, but it's important. It doesn't come by a mystical experience like some in Colossae thought. They had to have some vision, some some higher knowledge. It wasn't by devotion and meditation. It came from study and hard work. Holy Spirit blessing that. Investigating the natural world and building on the work of those who'd gone before. That's why we need education. And historically, Christians have led the way. Let's look at education in the early church. Paul told Timothy, uh, things you've heard from me and trust the faithful men, teach others also. Jesus to the apostles, 
the apostles to faithful men, faithful men to others. The early church took the command seriously. Pre- and post-converts in the early church were carefully instructed in doctrine and often instructed using manuals and catechisms. And they often taught a useful trade as well for both men and women, and this was revolutionary at the time, especially to instruct women. Was not the Roman way. So we have this ancient piece of literature. Anybody familiar with this? I, when I saw it, I called it the didot. That's a good Kentucky accent. <laughs> Amy here. Didache. How's that? Didache. Didica. Which one do you want to go with? Didache. Didache. Okay. Well, means what? Didactic means teaching, the teaching. And it was written in the latter half of the first century. I had never even heard of it. I'm, I'm sure I've been taught about it, but I didn't know a thing about it. I um, was ignorant. Um, it was one of the catechism books used by the early church, though it was not inspired, uh, as you'll see, about a third of the length of the book of Mark and uh, about 2,300 words. And it talked about the road to life and the road to death, and it gave, is basically how you live out a Christian life. And so here's an example from it. Uh, Some of it's good, some of it's interesting. Uh, It said, now concerning the apostles and prophets, deal with them as follows in accordance with the rule of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be welcomed as if he were the Lord. But he is not to stay for more than one day unless there is need, in which case he may stay another. But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. (laughs) And when the apostle leaves, he's to take nothing except bread until he finds his next night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. Today's uh, evangelist uh, on TV would would not be eating much and staying much, would they? (laughs) There, w- there was some very good things, yes, as well. And, and a lot of it uh, was already in the, the scriptures. But they didn't have them in written form. So this was all passed down to them and, and recorded. In the second and third centuries, uh, the catechal, catechetical schools were established. And um, we have Augustine of Hippopotamus, Augustine of Hippo, who reflected deeply on the fact that all humans are created in the image of God as image bearers and and rational. He believed and taught that Christians can and should learn from all the learning known to pagan philosophers so they should be taught languages, history, grammar, logic, and sciences. And he wrote a comprehensive textbook of all various branches of learning to date, which became the standard text for European universities during the Middle Ages. <coughs> Did not know that. Here's what he said. Has not the genius of man invented and applied countless astonishing arts 
partly the result of necessity, partly the result of exuberant invention, so that this vigor of mind betokens an inexhaustible wealth in the human nature which can invent, learn, or employ such arts. My English teachers would have called that a run-on sentence. What wonderful, one might say, stupefying advances has human industry made in the acts of we in the arts of weaving and building or agriculture and navigation. What skill has been attained in measures and number with what sagacity and again being the ignorant math teacher, I had to look that up, wisdom, sage, have the movements and connections of the stars been discovered? Well, what made all this possible? Augustine said that it was because of the unspeakable blessing that God has conferred upon his creation, a rational nature. He wrote a six-volume work on music, didn't know that, built a philosophy of music from biblical, scientific, and philosophical foundations. He laid out a theology of music and showed that God providentially ordained the rational, eternal, unchangeable, and objective principles behind them. He said our creator encoded music into the structure of the universe. And so you're familiar with this phrase, all truth is God's truth, isn't it? And Calvin spoke of this as well when he said, whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, let this admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of men, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it where it shall appear, unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. All truth comes from God. That is true. All truth is truth. Monasteries. What about monasteries? Well, as the Western Roman world was disintegrating, monasteries were actually the reason we have any remaining memory of the literature from that period, from the ancient world. Uh, in the East, Christian civilization united the intellectual cultures of the Greek, Egyptian, Syrian worlds and preserved the Hellenic Wisdom in academies and libraries in Greece, Syria, and Asia Minor, in libraries. The universities came out of a Christian foundation. Monasteries, cathedral schools developed into the earliest universities. First university, Bologna, 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 Bologna. <laughs> in 1088, did not know that. In Paris, in the late 11th century, Oxford and Cambridge in 1200, that is one old school or two old schools. And Oxford's motto, okay, here I go, Amy, Dominus Illumination Mea, is that Kind of it. <laughs> Better. God is my guiding light. That's what Oxford's motto was in 1200. 
by the early 1300s, there were 1,000 to 1,500 students, excuse me, at each university. By the 15th century, almost every state in Europe had a university. And it encouraged a significant amount of free inquiry and debate, which enhanced the pursuit of knowledge. I didn't know this. Because of the common language of Latin, the universities in different European countries were integrated and scholars were allowed to go wherever they wanted to learn. They could be bought back and forth between various schools. Have you ever heard this statement before regarding this time period? Christianity suppressed scientific pursuits and endeavors and plunged Europe into the Dark Ages. I've heard, I was taught that growing up. And actually, it's the reverse. So much technological progress took place during these centuries that in 1200, European technology was head and shoulders above anything else in the world. Medieval Europe also excelled in philosophy and science at this time. Example of a common false narrative. Today, Christians were the ones promoting flat earth theories. You hear that, and sometimes it's tied to, you know, putting the young earth people in in the same camp as the flat earthers. You, You know, you're teaching stuff that flat earth people believe, and those were the Christians back then doing it then, too. Untrue. Well, there may have been some, but guess who the leading proponents of around earth were? Christians. Hadn't heard of this guy. Who's heard of John of Probosco? (laughs) Sacrobosco. Sacrobosco. He was a scholar and a monk around the uh, 12th century, 13th century, and an astronomer who taught at the University of Paris that all heavenly bodies, including the earth, were spherical. He wrote about an Arabic number system and my fave, algebra. Brilliant scientist. uh, I'd never heard of this guy before. Um, Anybody heard of Bede? or Betty, Amy has, because she knows all of this European history. Okay, Uh, well, Bede in the 8th century taught that the earth was round. 8th century, whoops. He was one of the greatest scholars of the Anglo-Saxon period. He produced a number of large works on subjects as varied as science, music, poetry, and biblical commentaries but he's most famous for his ecclesiastical history of the English people, one of our best written sources for English, early English history. Uh, Thomas Aquinas also proposed that the earth was round in the 13th century. Christian theology was fundamental for the rise of modern science. The leading scientific figures in the 16th and 17th centuries were overwhelmingly devout Christians who believed it their duty to comprehend God's handiwork. Keep flipping to this one. We'll get there. John Calvin, what was his view? Was he one of the ones holding back things? You know, those reformers, they were opposed to everything 
scientific. They were into theology. Not so. Here's what Calvin says. What then shall we deny that the truth shown upon the ancient jurist who established civic order and discipline with such great equity? Shall we say that the philosophers were blind in their fine observation and artful description of nature? Shall we say that those men were devoid of understanding who conceived the art of disputation and taught us to speak reasonably? We cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without great admiration. But shall we count anything praiseworthy or noble without recognizing at the same time that it comes from God? If the Lord has willed that we be helped in physics, dialectic, mathematics, and other like disciplines by the work of the ungodly, let us use this assistance. For if we neglect God's gift freely offered in these arts, we ought to suffer just punishment for our sloth. He wasn't opposed to science. He said we can learn much. And I brought this guy up. Do y'all remember him last week? See Jimmy Lynn. I didn't get to do his little uh, thing, so I'm going to do it now because it fits with education as well. He was he founded the Rare Genomic Institute. Um, he's involved in rare disease analysis using uh, DNA and genes to determine uh, disease in people, and quite an entrepreneur. But he's also uh, in the science fields, respected enough to where they uh, had a debate with him and a Hindu about can um, science and faith coexist? And so we're going to listen to the first couple of minutes of it here just to let you know these kind of people are out there. Tonight, um, um, we're talking about um, whether there, there is a, a dichotomy, whether faith and science um, can coexist, um, often a, a very hot topic in our popular culture these days. Before I even get started, can I just have a show of hands? How many think they can coexist, faith and science? This is at Harvard Medical School. How many of these think that they can, cannot? Oh, I think we should all just go home then. <laughs> I'm sure some people are shy. Um, so one of my stories, uh, during my training in graduate school, I remember talking to one of my friends, um, and we were you know, pipetting or doing experiments, um, and then we were talking about weekends. Um, it's like, oh, so Jimmy, what did you do this weekend? And I'm like, oh, I said, oh, yeah, um, we had a you know, church picnic, and we're doing stuff. It's like, wait, you, you went to, did, you, did I hear church? Um, and, and I'm just getting to know this. I'm like, yeah, no, I go to church on Sundays. Um, and he's like, oh, Jimmy, I know. You're my friend and all, and this is what I'm going to tell you. And he said in a very whispery voice, don't tell other people you go to church. Um, you'll commit intellectual suicide. Um, and I, I was very sort of appreciative of his advice and his own caring for me. And I told my friend, like, I, I, I think it's okay. I think um, faith and science can come together. Um, and frankly, uh, this is believed by a lot of people um, in our culture, in our society, that, that there are strong antagonism. Um, between the two, um, and and sort of my my the thing I'm going to sort of sort of lay before the table is I'm going to argue sort of that there isn't um, this big tension uh, between the two. 
Let me start off by, I'm going to talk about four things quickly. I don't have much time, only 12 minutes. Uh, I'm going to talk about four topics. I'm going to talk about history, talk about science, and talk about philosophy, and ultimately talking about faith. So history, historically. So I always think about what is one sort of the biggest accomplishments um, of science? Like, what do people aspire to? Um, some people aspire to sort of winning the Nobel Prize, right? Like, wow, you win the Nobel Prize. That's sort of the ultimate achievement of science. In my opinion, actually, the, the, the thing that I aspire to one day um, is to have a unit of measure named after me. Because, <laughs> um, I don't know, you don't know, a lot of the Nobel, you know, do you know who won the Nobel Prize in physics last year or chemistry, right? But you know these units of measure. Um, and I, I dream of one day, you know, one Jimmy, you know, maybe it's a period of time or maybe it's a, it's a, it's a distance, right? That's sort of, um, and it's just, if you look at sort of units of measure, which I'd sort of do fun because um, I'm a nerd, I like to study these things. You have some of these sort of amazing people who contributed significantly to science and units of measures are named after them. And since we're at Harvard, um, people are smarter. Let's do a little bit of a test of actually, you, you know, your units of measure. Um, we'll start easy. Um, what's the unit of measure of force? Newton, right? So Isaac Newton, you know, fame, you know, he, he invented a lot of sort of physics and sort of invented calculus on the side because he's so smart. Um, but um, some of you know that he wrote a lot about religion, very sort of devout in his faith as well. Um, very, um, so there's somebody who, you know, you mentioned, you know, it's random, very devoted in his faith. Um, how about unit of pressure? Pascal, right? Pascal, not only known from his work in, on triangles, um, but, but also uh, general mathematics, um, but his work on, on the Ponces, right? Uh, amazing uh, piece of French literature talking, um, exploring faith as well. Okay, we'll get a little bit harder. Um, capacitance. Faraday, some of her Faraday, right? Michael Faraday, again, no, these are not just sort of nominal church people because everybody was Christian. No, these are devout church members, himself, an um, elder and a preacher in his church, right? Um, again, revolutionized the field. Uh, atomic mass unit, Dalton, right? Lord D Dalton, uh, John Dalton, a very sort of devout Quaker. We'll go a little bit faster since there are a lot of these. Um, this will be a little bit trickier, especially in the US. Uh, temperature. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, see, see, I think I got some of you. Um, obviously, the right scientific way of measuring temperature is Kelvin. Um, I think I heard about half. So, so William Thompson, Lord Kelvin, um, obviously, his work and measuring temperature there, um, and the list goes on, right? So, what? And also, now the units of measure like Maxwell's equation, John Maxwell, or um, think about Kepler's law. So. Historically, there really not only was no tension uh, between faith and science, that a lot of the luminaries, the people that advanced the field and left their mark in terms of these units were people of faith and a very devout faith. Um, um, and even you know, today, you know, I'm at the NIH and, and um, my boss's 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 boss um, is Francis Collins, um, him. who himself, right, is a very sort of devout Christian faith. And there are Last plenty week. of, of um, Christian scientists, you know, this institution. That is, scientists who are Christians. Um, that, that sort of see no tension. And so this sort of, this sort of antagonism actually has been a rather um, recent phenomenon. Um, okay, we'll stop there. See if I can get out of here. There we go.
So that's Jimmy. He was listening to some lectures by J.I. Packer um, when he, Packer taught at Regent University. And Packer would always start or end his class with theology is for doxology. That theology is not just to get information, it's to glorify God, to give praise to him. Well, Jimmy not only agrees with it, but expands on it. He said, that's not just true for theology, it's for everything. Biology is for doxology. Chemistry is for doxology. That's when I started to think I should consider myself, first and foremost, as a person who praises God in what I do, and then no longer make Christian the adjective, right? Doxologist is the noun. But then what kind of doxologist am I? So I call myself a medical and scientist, do, scientific doxologist. I would call someone, for example, in the marketplace, a business doxologist or someone who does art, an artistic doxologist, or someone, or excuse me, to really have the noun as our identity, and then our vocation is just a descriptor of how we do that. So he calls himself a, uh, a, doc, a medical doxologist, medical and scientific doxologist. Pretty cool. And he says it's opened up, when he uses that phrase, people say, like, what do you mean? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> And so, beautiful, great to, to know. They're out there. Schools were started largely by Christians and Christian worldviews. King's School in Canterbury is the oldest still-functioning school in Britain. And the early schools taught the trivium, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and the quadrivium, mathematics, or arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. Uh, this one was founded by Augustine in 597. Education for girls was uniquely Christian during the Roman Greco period, we said, but that continued through later years. It was Christians who were saying, Women and girls need to be educated as well. Luther believed it was a crime for parents not to ensure the education of their children. And he wanted free and unrestricted education with no distinction of sex or social class. And schools were to train children for life, not just for clergy. And he spoke against the popes in that way. After the Reformation, universal literacy was seen as an essential so everyone could read the scriptures. Calvin also wanted secondary schools to train citizens for civil and ecclesiastical leadership, and public schools were the result of that. So the desire to read the Bible became the fuel that drove the engine of Europe's literacy. This young lady, anybody know her? I didn't know her either, not just by picture, but by name. Anna Marie von Schurman. She was a skilled linguist in 13 languages, brought up in the Dutch Reformed Church. In 1638, she published a treatise on the need for women to be educated. 
During the Reformation, there was a surge in the building of schools for girls. She was a Renaissance woman, painter, poet, engraver, first woman to non-officially study at a Dutch university. Whenever the Reformation was impacting a country, mass literacy was there. Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands, Scandinavia, Iceland, Lowland Scotland, the Puritan areas of England, and the American colonies. Didn't know this guy. John Comenius. Anybody know him? He is a Moravian, starred schools for poor girls and boys, encouraged learning by inquiry, wrote the first children's picture book, The World of Things Obvious to the Senses Drawn in Pictures, He wrote 90 books on education. His advice was sought all over Europe, and he believed education should be, and I fail at this often, a happy experience for children (laughs) and adapted to their stage of development individually. So he wrote this book, and these are pages out of the English edition, the English on the left and the Latin on the right, uh, and he's got little pictures. I don't know if you can read the, the right side with his drawings. It says, the crow crieth, the lamb bleedeth, the grasshopper chirpeth, the hoopoe saith, the infant crieth, thus saith this gentleman. At one point, it was the most used textbook in Europe for elementary education. Reminds you of the McGuffey Reader, doesn't it, in America? So they may have caught some from Comenius. Anybody know who that guy is? You should know this guy. It's not Newton. (laughs) Hymn writer, alas and did my Savior bleed, joy to the world when I surveyed the wondrous cross. Preacher, who is it? Isaac Watts. Well, did you know this? He wrote textbooks on language, logic, mathematics, science, which were used in Britain and internationally up to the university level. Tutored children for several years. Regarded teaching as one of the noblest occupations. Here's what he said. How lovely it is to see a teacher waiting upon those that are slow of understanding. Boy, talk about rebuke. Woo! and taking due time and pains to make the learner understand what he means without upbraiding him with his weakness. Isn't that beautiful? Wish I'd had those kind of teachers sometimes. I had them sometimes. Another thing he wrote, this discourse on the education of children and youth, he stressed because God has given everyone a rational nature and a soul that will never die. Girls need, as well as boys, an excellent education. Teachers don't just convey information. They teach by the way they live. Teachers must be kind and teach children to be kind. Teachers must be cheerful and encourage children to be cheerful. Children should be taken out on trips as much travel as possible should be encouraged. They should be trained to be diligent, be read widely. Above all, to be pointed to their creator, knowing God brings joy. So teachers must demonstrate that joy. Whew, it's high standard. It's good, though. His discourse was very popular in the 18th century. Dissenters of the established church in England were not allowed to go to English universities, 
So they developed their own academies and used Watts' textbooks in, in their education. Anybody know this guy? I don't know him either. Didn't. Robert Rakes. Does that help you? Not at all. Sunday school developer. Developed for poor children in Gloucester who worked during the week and could only come on Sunday. Included basic literacy, and by 1831, there were more than 1.25 million children attending Sunday schools in England. And it was carried out by tens of thousands of Christian volunteers like we got going on right now. Anybody know this lady? It's not Jane Austen, but at one point she was more popular than Jane Austen in her writings. She was a socialite in England, Hannah Moore. And she was converted after reading a book by John Newton. Amazing Grace John Newton. She gave sacrificially of her own resources to establish schools for poor girls as well as boys and wrote booklets with positive family values, encouraged the avoidance of vice, and some said her influence may have prevented a revolution that they were afraid was going to happen like happened in France. It's fine, gentlemen. This is homage to Mrs. Hoke and Mrs. Quigg. Friedrich Froebel, who started kindergartens. German originator. Son of a pastor convinced by his Christian upbringing that the world of man and nature were connected by God. Children needed to be taught from an early age and the concept of young plants growing under the care of an expert gardener. Kindergarten. How's that? That's real Germany, huh? (laughs) Surveys of coal miners, seamen, and marines in England between 1840 and 1865 indicated that between 80 and 90 percent of adults could read and was on the rise. That was the impact of Christians. Mission schools, international movement. Y'all know this gentleman, William Carey, English missionary to India, came up very poor. He is a preacher, researched every country where the gospel was needed and unknown. Left for India with his young wife in 1793, and people thought he was nuts. He's known as the father of modern missions and under seemingly impossible conditions, said, I complied. And his well-known saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. He translated the scriptures into many Indian languages, trained Indian ministers, promoted social reforms, began dozens of Indian schools for all castes, pioneered the printing industry in India, became professor of Bengali, Sanskrit, and Marathi at Fort William College in Calcutta. Translated and printed uh, great Indian religious classics. Transformed Bengali into the foremost literary language of India and established the first newspaper printed in any Asian language. Didn't didn't sit around, did he? (laughs) His wife had a nervous breakdown. Numerous children died was often in danger of his own life from radical Hindus. 
Now on his tombstone reads the epitaph you're probably familiar with, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. His hope was in Christ. I could speak of other missionaries as well in mission movements, New Tribes Mission, Mission Aviation Fellowship, where we had the five missionaries to the Alka Indians, Jim Elliott among them, Nate Saint, launching missions around the world, Compassion International, which acts not only as a uh, providing food, but education to children around the world who can't afford it. Christians. How about this lady? We're, we got to hurry here. Ann Judson, Adoniram's wife. One of the first American overseas missionaries at age 21, two weeks after being married. They started a school in Burma for girls in a culture where it was strictly forbidden. Wrote a catechism in Burmese. And in 1819, first Protestant to translate any scriptures into Thai under great hardships while there. And she died at 37 of smallpox in Burma. All three of her children died, one in a miscarriage, one six months after her death, poor health due to her liver. Our own RH and, and her husband who are around the other side of the world know what it is to leave it all behind and go and give their lives on behalf of the gospel and to teach the truth. We're out of time here. Uh, Every collegiate institution founded in the colonies prior to the Revolutionary War except the University of Pennsylvania was established by some branch of the Christian church. In 1932, 92% of the 182 colleges and universities were founded by Christian denominations. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Northwestern, Brown, Columbia all began as theological institutions. UK, and that's y'all, okay, not the United Kingdom, University of Kentucky, Berkeley, and UT, University of Tennessee had their origins as church schools. In Europe, Oxford, Paris, Cambridge, Heidelberg, and Basel also had Christian origins. What's the impact from all those? Well, we even have a little school here called Heritage Christian School. Give a plug. Don't know that it'll transform the world, but our desire is that we transform one, transform two, transform three, that God would bless that.